This is Kip Speak, a podcast created as a platform to foster conversation around the future of the legal industry and encourage young professionals to engage with leading innovators from across the UK. Hi, I'm Shana, and welcome to Kip Speak. In this episode, I sat down with Harry Clark, future trainee solicitor at Baker McKenzie. Harry is also a legal influencer who runs his own podcast and blog to help aspiring solicitors. We spoke about legal innovation and what drives it, and some opportunities for students and graduates to discover what legal tech is all about. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Thank you for joining us today, Harry, on Kip Speak. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, so I guess I'll get started with the questions. first thing I had in mind was I wanted to know how you became interested in legal tech in the first place. Mm-hmm. Sure, so it all kind of developed alongside my kind of blogging and networking efforts that I was putting in for the last sort of five months and as a general rule of thumb, the, the more I learned about the industry, the more people I talked to, the more I kind of realised there was this huge diverse range of individuals and professions. So it's, you know, my own misconceptions about lawyers just kind of being lawyers was wrong when I started talking to people who were legal innovators, legal design specialists, um, you know, people who were in that kind of intersection between law and tech. And in all, all honesty, just the more I talked to them, the, the more I just kind of found it fascinating to hear their perspectives and to hear their kind of um, their thoughts on the future of the profession, which is, was something that really interested me. Because at the end of the day, I'm hoping that I stick around in the legal legal industry for some time. And um, you know, I think it's important to kind of keep ahead of all the changes that will. Um, potentially be happening to, to your profession really, in the way that lawyers will, will potentially change. Um, and it was also kind of at the same time as doing all of that um, kind of reading and networking and that sort of stuff, you came across all these articles when you see like, you know, robots are going to replace lawyers and automation is going to wipe out the industry. And it wasn't just law, is it? You know, every single industry was kind of having these kind of scaremongering hype, uh, you know, hype fuel potentially grabbing headlines. And, uh, you know, it, to, as to put it shortly, I kind of wanted to cut through all of that white noise and to understand what's really going on here. And um, the way I did that was by talking to people, was by engaging with all this content and um, eventually kind of making my own podcast and, and doing my best to kind of speak to people that way. So um, really, uh, you know, the interest stemmed from wanting to know more about where my career might potentially be going and where other lawyers um, might, might be working in the future as well and trying to set aside the kind of pipe field attention grabbing headlines that you read about from what's the kind of real fundamental change here, what's the real innovation that's actually going on at these kind of times. So in, as far as your efforts to cut through the noise have gone, mm. how, to what extent should we be worried as law <laughs> students are future lawyers? Sure, that's a big question. I mean, you know, some of the articles you read are just absolutely ridiculous. So it's the, you know, like robot lawyers will completely replace us completely and the humans aren't going to involve in the process and things. And those are quite demonstrably wrong. I think lawyers as human beings are always going to have that element of, of work in the profession and will be involved in the process in the delivery of legal services, which I think is what legal innovation and legal tech particularly is kind of concerned about. Um, as for the actual practical you know, reality as to what law students should prepare for or what you should sort of expect, I think um, the way that tech and innovation generally is, is kind of being developed in the legal profession means that Lawyers will have access to new tools, will, will have access to and, and demands for new skills um, in the profession, and they'll, they'll generally have to interact with a, a kind of myriad of new technologies in a way that supplements their work rather than replacing it. So um, if you think about things like contract review software, rather than having to go through it um, line by line and scan it yourself, instead you'll be reviewing the work that a machine would do, for instance. Um, again, 
how far off this that kind of reality is in terms of its practical everyday applications is kind of another question entirely. Um, but I think it's important to have at least a commercial understanding of these kind of technological and innovative changes, um, uh, let alone a, a technical one in terms of how they actually work at a kind of coding level. Um, just because I think it's 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 changes that will inevitably happen in the industry at some point, and um, having an understanding of how these tools are going to function and how it's going to change um, the demands of lawyers and, and the skills that they're going to need is going to be is going to be really important. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that the point you made about the fact that lawyers just continue to de deliver these services mm. is quite valid, especially because clients are still in, at the end of the day people. Yeah. And we're, I don't think we're quite at the stage yet where we want to replace all human interaction with. No, you know, I mean everyone's been on the end of a you know annoying robotic um, operator on a phone call and they're trying to book a table or something like that or get through to customer services and those are infuriating that would be so. In the imagination that those kind of technologies and software will be delivering legal services, which is already infuriating enough for most clients, <laughs> I can imagine, is a far cry, I think, from where we are right now and even where I think we're going. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, that's a good point. So how would you encourage other um, people looking to enter the legal profession mm. um, and curious about this area to kind of develop their understanding? Are there any sort of go-to resources you found helpful or mm -hmm. certain, um, you know, things to look into specifically? Yeah, sure. So there's a really great society that I kind of first attended when I actually met one of the uh, KIPS people, Bernie, um, who you know, oh, yeah. um, and that was the Society for Computers and Law. So it's a society that's dedicated to this kind of intersection between technology and the um, provision of legal services. They host great events um, every year, um, some of them are free, some of them are paid for, and they do a wide range of things from um, think tanks through to these sort of keynotes, speeches and developments and um, networking opportunities. Um, I've recently been invited to take part on a, a, on a green paper suggestion for how a legal oh, wow. tech curriculum might kind of look as a result of one of those That's events. So they, cool. Yeah, they, they extended it to all of their um, their guests and attendees to contribute to that. So, you know, they're all really great opportunities to essentially learn more about um, what it's all about. And you don't have to go there with this huge technical understanding. You just have to go there with an interest in being able to ask questions and to hopefully draw something from that. So definitely start with um, the Society for Communities and Law as well. Um, secondly, Twitter and LinkedIn and social media in general, lawyers love them for some reason, um, especially Twitter, they're all over it. And you can follow a great number of kind of academics and um, leading kind of thought influencers and thinkers in this area all over Twitter and they quite often will respond to news events that happen in real time and critique them and it's a great um, platform to yeah. kind of see both sides of a debate on, on, an, on an argument and to kind of get a real insight into how different lawyers think, especially when it comes to on the global mindset. So I've had the ability to chat to people from the US, to Canada, from elsewhere in Europe, um, just through my kind of social media networking and um, things alone in the legal tech sphere, legal information sphere. Um, and so that's a, that's a really great tip as well. And then finally, uh, I saw sort of just say giving it a go. So attending things like um, global uh, legal hackathons, where you have the ability to kind of test out all of these things you've, you've been learning at those sorts of events. Um, have a go coding yourself if it's something that genuinely interests you and that you want to contribute towards, or have a think about how um, you know, contracts are put together and the way that firms currently deliver their legal services and try to pick any holes in it that you think you can think of and try. Just kind of a bit of a thought exercise, really, in, in terms of what law firms are all about and the way that they deliver their legal services. Um, a shameless plug as well, I do talk a lot about legal innovation and legal tech on my podcast, More From Law. So um, if you like my voice and want to hear more about that, I guess uh, check that out too.
Yeah, we'll have you listen to a few episodes. <laughs> <laughs> I can definitely recommend them. That's good, that's good. Good review. Yeah. Uh, just out of curiosity, did you ever consider going down like a legal tech or product development role route as yeah. opposed to becoming a traditional lawyer? Yeah, so it, it's really interesting because, I mean, like I said, all of this kind of interest and you know, curiosity in the world of legal innovation, legal tech, <laughs> happened after I received my training contract offer. Oh, yeah. So I didn't really go into the kind of um, procurement of a legal career with that at the back of my mind at that stage for me it was more just about I want to be a lawyer and that's still predominantly the case so um, you know as much as I like kind of critiquing and thinking about the, the delivery of legal services and how, how innovation is happening I, at heart I still want to actually practice that and so um, right now my kind of interest is in um, going into the profession with that open mind and seeing what I can learn um, on the side of things um, but even if I kind of went into that whole process of, of wanting to join the, I guess, legal tech career path. Um, in reality, we don't really know what it looks like yet because it's such a new area of, of kind of development in law firms and in the profession generally that there's no real kind of structured career path and there is the same way that you get to partnership, you know, if we're just practicing more, more generally. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's articles and discussions about there being a glass ceiling in the world of legal tech because there's, there's no real kind of senior role you get to outside of you know, just being a legal technician or the solutions analyst or something like that, that that kind of just manages those teams and it's where you go beyond that that's, that's really interesting um, and even like I said even if I knew that that was what I wanted to do I think still the, the practice of law itself and yeah. facing clients and solving problems that way is still kind of at the heart of what I want to do it's just keeping all of those skills and, and discussions in the back of my mind so that I can help bring that into my practice and hopefully um, just learn more about the industry more generally as I, as I go through the process. Yeah, absolutely, that makes a lot of sense. Mm. And I think, to be fair, a lot of the legal innovation initiatives nowadays ask for a cross-disciplinary mm. approach, so yeah. they are combining lawyers and technologists and business people yeah. to contribute their respective expertise absolutely. towards the product. And just, and just this is a, my own personal opinion, I'm sure people would disagree with this, but me personally, if I was going to go into that route, I would have liked myself to have had more of a go at things like coding, and either, you know, not necessarily be taking a computer science degree, but certainly yeah. having much more of a practical um, and, and kind of rigorous teaching style that I could learn from, yeah. so that I could then bring it into practice. Right now, I'm just kind of self-teaching and just yeah. kind of doing it as more of a hobby, but if I was seriously going to go into you know, coding legal solutions as a, as a full-time job, I'd want to have some substantial programming experience behind me. That's not to say I won't have it in the future, but I think just from my own personal perspective, I would have wanted that in place at least somewhat before I started applying for jobs. And in all honesty, it would have changed the type of jobs that I would have applied for anyway, because you'd need that kind of opportunity to practice those skills. And um, like we've touched on, it's such a new area that those those kind of opportunities are only opening up kind of right now and very recently. Yeah, so. that's true. Mm. I mean, yeah, that's fair. There are some firms I know, like Clifford Chance, which have opened up to a more legal tech focus, yeah. not alternative to training contracts, yeah. but that's also very noticeable. Yeah, I think we'll hopefully see more of those as the, as the kind of years go on, and, yeah. or at least um, you know, training contracts more generally will get a bit more tailored to what the firm wants their mm -hmm. trainees to practice. Oh, that doesn't have to just be tech or innovation based; it could be anything. But um, you know, and secondments have always been a, an example of the international element of that. But um, no, that's there is a great point that firms are starting to rethink that recruitment process and certainly offering more opportunities to law students and younger lawyers, which I think is just fantastic. Yeah. Um, moving on to a more big picture view of mm -hmm. innovation, I wanted to ask, in your view, based on what you found <laughs> out, what do you think are the three biggest drivers of legal innovation today? 
Sure. So that's a big question. And it's, you know, I could list a number of factors and I'm sure I'd get <laughs> critiqued and people would have their disagreements because, um, in all honesty, there's quite a few. Um, but when I was trying to think about three that I would pick, I was trying to think of ones that weren't just tech-oriented because, um, as a small caveat, I think there's a, there's a big conflation that people have between legal innovation and legal tech. They think that you have to innovate with tech and you can't do without it when, in reality, if you think about everything from you know, flexible working to new business models and approaches to legal services, they don't always require a tech-heavy tech element to them. So I was trying to think of three things that would hopefully um, come to all that. So, um, my first would kind of be the, the historical nature of how law firms have kind of operated to this day. And, you know, they have inadvertently contributed to the need for this innovation in that the legal industry is kind of historically known for being very adherent to um, kind of older precedents and principles rather than embracing innovation. So you know, the idea that you build clients on a, on a bill of our model um, and that this is the way things have always been done and the partial model is always the way to do it has, has historically remained in place for quite some time. And I think the fact that it's been like that for so long means that when these new models have come along, people have actually started to go, well, actually, there's some real kind of pros and cons to doing it this way instead. And, and that's why the kind of real discussion is starting to come along. So I certainly think the historical nature is, is one of the kind of key drivers of change. Um, the second would be the client side of things. So I think clients are starting to realize that um, ultimately they, they kind of want more for less from their lawyers, or at least the people who are providing their legal services, because they're not always the same thing nowadays. Um, and given that there's so many alternatives now, um, of uh, business service providers and these sort of things, you know, clients are being more willing to um, accept legal services from non-law firms, if that makes sense. So, you know, they're, they're kind of willing to try new things and to, and to get a different perspective on things as well. Uh, they've realised that ultimately they need to account for efficiency um, when, they're, when they're going for their legal services. They want something that's, that, you know, they're getting their money's worth if you're going on a bill of our model. They don't want to just see lawyers racking up the bill. Um, and they want to reduce their risk as well. And law firms aren't always the go-to, I guess, when it comes to that provision. Um, and ultimately, they realise that they don't need lawyers to do legal tasks. So um, when it comes to where they get their legal services from, there's there's a variety of kind of um, alternatives out there. And those alternatives mean that law firms have to change in order to meet client demand as well. So um, that's probably number two. And then finally, I'd actually say lawyers ourselves are driving quite a lot of this change in our expectations. So we touched on it slightly earlier, but I think younger students and more junior lawyers more generally do have a great big interest in this stuff and their priorities and their needs entering the profession will be vastly different to the people who are currently sat at the party table right now. So um, as a more general kind of stereotype as to, as to workers in the profession, um, younger people are wanting a bit more work-life balance, they're wanting more of a say on the type of work that they do and tech is a great way to get that um, and I think it's impacting the way that they research firms and how they make their decisions when they're applying, and ultimately when they get into these companies, the new ideas that, that they want to bring really. Um, so I think that's an example again of how this legal innovation doesn't have to be tech central, it can, it can, it can be instead focus on how employees are functioning within the business. Um, and it's an example of you know, legal innovation that's separate from this kind of tech heavy influence. So um, I, I guess the historical nature of firms, clients' expectations, and also lawyers' expectations as well would be my three drivers. Yeah, great summary. <laughs> that's a 30 second essay. <laughs> I know it was a big question. So I'm you're asking for that. It's, that's pretty impressive. Uh, what are some of the ways that you've seen law firms respond to the three uh, pressures that you've identified? Sure. So, um, you know, there's a huge startup space within legal tech specifically right now. Um, and the, the amount of investment that's gone into the last few years has been absolutely mind-boggling. So I think, you know, investment has been 
doubling for the last three years consistently or something like that in terms of legal tech startups. Um, so it's quite clear that um, you know unique solutions that are quite niche that can that can genuinely solve a, a kind of legal need are, are being adapted by law firms and, and kind of get, being given that investment and that focus. Um, but at the other end, you've also got firms who are kind of creating these incubators and doing their own kind of legal research into the world of legal innovation and legal tech themselves. So take uh, McKenzie, for instance, which is who I'm going to join um, in September, have a, a white space legal collab, and that's where they bring in all different types of legal professionals and work on things from the perspective. But there's loads of other firms which do that as well, and I think that's an example of how, um, especially bigger firms that have the budget and capacity to do so, are kind of willing to take some of that innovation in-house and to try and give it themselves a go as well. Um, but having said all that, there are some kind of sad examples, I guess, in the industry where this innovation is almost window dressing for marketing. So I was uh, speaking to someone on the podcast a little while ago who said that um, they had this contract with a legal tech provider um, and who were quite well known in the industry, and they'd had this this contract for two years. And in those two years of services, the firm had never engaged the actual services of the provider. They simply wanted to put on their website that we are in partnership with you know, this provider because ultimately that's what clients are expecting. They want to see that you're embracing tech and that you're actually listening to their needs. So um, to me, that was just a a kind of mind-boggling kind of reality where legal effects will pay for a service but not used it because they recognise the importance of showing clients that they're embracing these changes and that they're listening to what their what their needs are. So that really fascinated me. That's yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, it's to identify the like the client uh, demand for it, yeah. but then not not really want use it, to it for yourself. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's it, very that's very interesting. Yeah. I think it speaks to the the kind of paradox that you have about the billable hour. That's another kind of thing that's big in the industry is that yeah. right now, if you have a billable hour model, it it disincentivizes innovation because if you're charging a client on on an hourly basis, what reason do you have to cut those hours down from a financial perspective and let you just simply finish the work quicker when? In reality, lawyers should be, you know, walking really slowly from the coffee room and back and kind of dragging out. Obviously, there's, a, there's other factors involved. That's a very basic simplification, but uh, it, it's certainly a factor in, in why innovation has kind of been, or met some resistance alongside the other kind of technological and cultural factors that are at play as well. Well, I'd say the tide has been changing. Yeah, sure. It's, it's been really interesting. It's, it's honestly a really exciting time in terms of profession because all these things are happening, all these new opportunities are opening up, really. Is there, do you have a favorite example of innovation that you've seen in the law firm that you haven't touched on? Sure. Um, so I did think about this, and uh, my answer is probably really boring. <laughs> in the, um, when I think about legal tech innovation, um, I really like to think of examples that solve a kind of practical need, and if anything, they kind of shy away from all the buzzwords and mm-hmm. artificial terms and blockchain and all that yeah. stuff. That's a whole other conversation. But, um, you know, really kind of practical and I guess boring examples are actually the ones which demonstrate how it works really well. So um, uh, my example was just simple word processing software on computers. Um, if you think back to, you know, the 1970s, 1980s, when computers were kind of moving from uh, industrial to personal kind of capacity, um, you saw that, you know, lawyers were going from having to rely on you know, typing calls and, and written letters and all these sort of things to the individual lawyer themselves being able to compose um, letters themselves and draft it from that perspective, which was a huge change. Um, and then something like Microsoft Word comes along with all the functionalities that that has the ability to you know, mark changes on documents and contracts and review different drafts and things like that, right through to more kind of modern and recent um, developments with things like Google Docs, where you have real-time collaboration as opposed to sending it back and forth. Um, and that, you know, that example has been extended to um, contract software 
now where you're, you're able to kind of negotiate the contract in real time with the other side, even if it's for basic things with like NDAs, um, that's a really prominent step which demonstrates that you know if it's applied in the right way and it's solving a genuine need and it can't already be done by legacy tech, legacy tech that already exists, then these new services and these new technologies are a great way for legal, uh, legal service providers to kind of fix that problem. When you say word processing is boring, but I'm sure at the time when it was first introduced. Oh, it was magic, I'm sure. And what's really interesting is that if you think back now, if you know, if you started a law firm today and you said you're not allowed to use, you know, Word or Google Docs, you'd obviously be a huge competitive disadvantage. People say, why are you, why are you doing it like this? Why are you relying on typing tools? And in 50 years' time, we'll be looking back at things like Google Docs and I'm sure saying quite similar things about why we did it this way and why we didn't do it that way. So um, it's a continuing kind of process, but uh, no, it's really funny to look back and see how something as benign as Word, which wasn't even designed for you know law firms, it just happened to be tech that they embraced, has kind of had such an impact on the industry. And I'm sure it, there's probably a mind-boggling figure of like at least 90% of all contracts now are written with Word. It's probably even higher than that. Um, and it just shows the reliance that it has on the industry. Um, and just to add one more point to that, it, it also shows how tech innovation generally, i.e. not legal tech, can still have an impact on the profession. Um, and that's why, why quite a few kind of um, quote unquote legal tech people I've talked to in the industry have actually said we need to drop that law tech or that legal tech prefix altogether because at the end of the day a lot of the tech that we claim is law tech or legal tech is being used elsewhere and um, we need to kind of get away from this idea that lawyers need to be the ones designing these services when in reality you just need to listen to clients and find any kind of solution tech or otherwise that, that fits their problem really. Yeah, that's a really good point. Mm. So to wrap up our interview, we usually ask all our interviewees a few questions. Sure. And um, the first one I want to ask you was, as a future trainee solicitor, what mm. excites you most about entering the legal industry in 2020? Yeah, I, I think it goes back to what we've been talking about. And mm -hmm. All of these new things we've been talking about have only been around in the last like, 10, 15 years at most with this kind of whole new wave of technology. And with it, it's bringing all of these new opportunities, and it's, it's, it's fundamentally changing, or at least promises to fundamentally change the way that lawyers will interact with their clients and the skills they're going to need. Um, that's certainly scary, and it's, it's kind of a bit unpredictable at times, but at the same time, it's a huge opportunity, and it's a, it's a kind of challenge to embrace. And it, it's starting to um, adopt the idea that lawyers don't have to just be very narrow in their skill set, and that you can bring in lawyers who have a tech-based um, skill background, or ones who kind of know more about business development and can kind of push those traditional models of getting new clients in new different ways. So um, I think just in short, it's all of the different opportunities which are out there and the fact that um, it's only going to grow even more and the fact that you know this innovation is going to always continue as, as client expectations change. And you know this conversation that we've had now will, will, will probably look silly and outdated in 50 years' time um, when, you know, when we're kind of exiting our legal careers, hopefully. But, you know, the, the fact that that change is always going to be continuous and present and that it's going to be, um, you know, a, a game of cat and mouse between um, those who innovate and those who don't is, is just, it's just fascinating to me. And it's something I really can't wait to kind of be involved in, I guess, and hopefully one day contribute towards. That's very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell us a bit about a highlight in the past year? Sure. Um, so, I, I mean, I guess, that, you know, all this kind of stuff in, in terms of my podcasting, my blogging has, has obviously been a great highlight for me. Um, but it all started about six months ago or so when I was on LinkedIn and I'd never used the platform before then at all. I, literally it was a digital CV, I couldn't care less for one of a better phrase. Um, and for some reason, I don't really know why, I opened it up and decided to make a short post about trading contracts and how you know you can't let 
don't let imposter syndrome get to you by reading all these people, you know, rightly, rightfully so, celebrating their things online. Um, but just understand that, you know, it's, it's not always like that and you need to kind of be on your own journey. Um, and from that day, since it, it absolutely blew up and went viral, um, I, it's been an absolute joy to, you know, start to mentor other people, eventually build more content on there, start my own blog, keep that going, um, start these social media accounts and start, start my own podcast eventually. So, um, just the ability to speak to a huge variety of people from around the world and to um, play a part in kind of talking to the, the future lawyers of tomorrow has been absolutely fascinating to me. And I think it's culminated in the release of my podcast, which I hope is going to be a kind of resource for people to learn more about the industry at any level of, of the profession they try and find themselves in and to speak to some really, really kind of thoughtful and engaging individuals. With. Individuals like yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've talked to um, myself on one episode, but yeah, we managed to get into that. I mean, uh, that leads in perfectly to the end of our conversation. Sure. And just to remind our listeners, where can we find you or learn more about what you do? Sure, absolutely. So um, I'm quite active on LinkedIn. You can find me there, Harry Clark, um, future trainee assistant at Baker McKenzie. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter at Harry Clark Law and, and my blog at page.clark.law blog and then also um, like I said my podcast more from law uh, has episodes every week which you can listen to on Spotify and iTunes. Thank you so much for joining us today Harry. No, great thanks so much Harry it was a pleasure. <laughs>